one of the privileges of, of being here at Richland and one of the blessings God has given me is to uh, have had somebody work beside me for so many years, almost nearly 25 years we've been together. And uh, the downside of all of that is that you have days when he's not here and you all of a sudden realize that you forgot some things that you just take for granted that he does so well. One of the things that I was grateful this morning for was his, his taking the youth on this mission trip and uh, just the confidence that parents have in him taking them. Um, I'm grateful for that. I'm great. I don't have anybody coming fearful of who's taking them. I had some parents who were sad to see their children go but had a deep assurance that good people were going with them. Um, and I'm grateful for Pastor Jason and all of that. But I say all that to say that I forgot that I need to have somebody read the text and dismiss the children. So I get to do that this morning. Children, you're dismissed to go to Children's Church. And I'm going to read the text. If you want to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. We're going to read on through verse 9 this morning. We're continuing on in this series in 2 Timothy, which, Lord willing, will take us through the rest of the summer, and then early in the fall, my plan is, Lord willing, to turn to the book of Romans. We felt like 2 Timothy was a good introduction to Romans. It's the last book, if you remember, that Paul wrote, um, and uh, we're going to turn to his greatest treatise, I think, the book of Romans following this time together. So let's read together, beginning at verse 1. It says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, and not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying the power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as James and Jambers Oppose Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of these two men. I should have mentioned that the children are going to Kids for Missions. It's another thing that happens when Pastor Jason is gone. I get it wrong. Pray for them as they're there. But this morning, we start in this text when it says, But understand this, Timothy. He doesn't say Timothy, but that's who he's writing. Understand this, Timothy. Understand some things. Understand some things that will occur in the last days. And so I titled the message this morning, What to Expect in the Last Days. There's lots of anticipation whenever the subject of the last days comes up or people begin to think about the last days. Early in my ministry, I remember being in a, for a couple of years in a, in a 
youth pastor position in, in Kansas and then came here following that. But I remember during that time, there was kind of a fascination. It was kind of the Hal Lindsey era, as the best way I can describe it. Late Great Planet Earth had come out not too long before that. There was lots of fascination about what was going to happen in the end times and lots of people looking at circumstances and trying to make them applicable to what was happening in the time. I remember Sudan, Sudan, Sudan Hussein was uh, going to be the Antichrist and then that got foiled when he got assassinated. But there were all kinds of stuff like that that was going on. And I remember getting caught in that a bit, thinking, boy, maybe I'm, I, I should know more about this and I should spend more time studying these kinds of things and all that was going on in that period of time. Uh, to, I say this carefully to not be misunderstood, but fortunately I didn't. Fortunately I didn't, because there, there were people who got distracted in some of that kind of stuff and continue to get distracted in those kinds of things. I think it, it, it has application to some of the things that Timothy said were just not, not profitable, not useful. You can get off in all kinds of controversies and all kinds of things like that um, and, and get distracted from the main things. And I'm grateful that God didn't let me go down that road um, though there was some pressure to do that at that time. Um, there's also people who, who hear about last times or last days and they want to make predictions. I remember early on in my time here at Richland, nearly 40 years ago or so, um, there were people predicting a certain date at which the end would come. And they announced it. And they're no longer in ministry today, to my understanding. Because they foolishly proclaimed it as given fact, and it didn't occur. And so the last days stirs up lots of stuff. But the truth of the matter is, much of that is because of misunderstanding of what the last days means. When, when Paul is writing Timothy, and he says, but understand this, Timothy, in the last days, what he is talking about are the days that will occur between the coming of Christ, the first coming, and the second coming of Christ. The last days is all of that period of time. We live in the last days now. but So it's not some future thing, the last days. It's the present. This is the last days. And tomorrow will be if the Lord doesn't return. And on and on and on. These are the last days. That whole stretch between first and second coming of Christ are the last days. And, and so Paul writes to Timothy and he says, understand some things about this period of time. These last days. Why do we believe it is all of that period? It's because of texts like we find in Acts chapter 2. Here Peter is standing with the eleven, the day of Pentecost, it says, lifted up his voice and addressed them. It says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these are not, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and then he quotes the Old Testament, says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and it goes on. But in the last days, what is the last days? The days of the coming of Christ and beyond that, to his second coming. In those last days, God will pour out his spirit. We live in the age of the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
the gift of the Holy Spirit given to God's people. So all of that's last days. Another text that would have application to that is Hebrews chapter 1. There it says, long ago, in verse 1, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So he spoke in many ways, various times, various ways to the prophets. Then it says, but, but, in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. It's this age, the present, right now, today, is some of what the reference to the last days was about. The present, not the future. The present. And so several things he says to understand about him. Get, understand this, Timothy, and I just want to walk through them this morning with you. First of all, understand that in the last days, in the time of the first to the second coming of Christ, there will be times of difficulty. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. It's going to come. In fact, the whole book has been talking about that. Difficulty will come. And, and really what it says when it says there will be times of difficulty, the inference of that is there will be seasons of difficulty. Doesn't mean that, that it will all be the same difficulty all through, but it will ebb and flow. There will be seasons when it's greater, seasons less, but there will be seasons all the way along sprinkled with difficulty. Expect it, know it. That's what's going to happen. Um, Revelation chapter 6 can kind of ground us there. And if you go to verse 9 in Revelation, as John is, is having these things revealed to him, and it's the, the, the chapter talking about the seven seals, it says this, when he opened the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, he saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. That, that's difficulty, isn't it? They had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until something would happen. So the, the picture here is the martyrs at this point who have died for their faith, for the word and their testimony. They've died, physically been killed for professing Christ. And so they're given a white robe and they're said to wait a while as they cry out, how long, Lord? How much longer do we wait for our blood to be avenged? And the scripture says, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. We're not to take it. God will one day right every wrong, um, every injustice, because he's a just God. But what are they to wait for? Scripture tells us they are to wait as they have those robes on until um, the full number of the martyrs have come in. It, it says it this way, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In other words, there is a a set number of martyrs who are going to die for professing faith and the word of God in Christ. And when the last one comes in, then their blood will be avenged. So, don't be surprised by trouble. Don't be surprised by seasons of trouble. Realize it may ebb and flow, but 
it will come. The, unfortunately, I think sometimes we don't always get that as Christians in our country, in the West, particularly here. Because we've had, I think, one of those seasons when there hasn't been as much difficulty for a few hundred years, a couple hundred years. It, it's been relatively okay and, and, in fact, popular in many circles to be Christian. I think that's why. In fact, I've read a couple of books um, of, of presidential campaigns, and, and it was really back in the Eisenhower um, presidency. Uh, Eisenhower was baptized in office. He was the only president to be baptized while in office. Um, and, and certainly I'm not impugning the genuineness of him and all of that, but it also didn't hurt. It didn't hurt him. It helped him. And you certainly hear often God's name invoked um, in presidential speeches and those kinds of things and other ways. So there's been a sense in which it, is not, it has not been difficult to name the name of Christ here. And, and I say again that that in some ways distorts our perspective, I think. Distorts our perspective when we read texts like this. There will be times of difficulty. Now, I think that is changing. I think we are becoming a post-Christian nation. Um, there are many who would say that. And it is becoming less and less popular. And I think, unless something intervenes, that it will not necessarily be as popular going forth to have Christianity on your resume or political office or other things. In fact, it already isn't in many circles. There are ebbs and flows of this difficulty, but don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Timothy, don't draw back. Church, don't draw back. Don't, don't be silent as it becomes less popular to name the name of Christ in circles. Don't draw back. That's what Paul is saying. Just expect it. It's just, it's just part of it. It's what I've experienced, Paul would say to Timothy. And you will experience it as well. And then he goes on to say why. Why we should not expect it, uh, be surprised, but expect suffering to come to ebb and flow in the church. That it shouldn't catch us off guard. And the reason is the hearts of men. What he goes into in this text is he begins to talk about the hearts of men. It is an incredible description of the hearts of men. Let me just read it again to you. Just, just listen to what he says for the reason of that difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And what you find inserted there is the difference between lovers of ourselves and lovers of God. Right there it says in, in verse through 2, the people will be lovers of self. And then at the end it says, rather than lovers of God. That's the description of the heart of man. 
devoid of the grace of God, that is the heart of man. He is a lover of himself. And no matter how well he dresses that up, the unredeemed man at the heart is a lover of himself. Some people make it more um, palatable and make it look a little better as they dress it up. Others are just just there. You just see it. But at the heart of it, it is the difference between a lover of God and a lover of ourselves, the unredeemed heart. And the scripture says very plainly that the gospel is an offense to the heart of man. The gospel is an offense to the heart of man. People will take offense at it. And again, it shouldn't surprise us because that's their heart. The heart is about them. And so the gospel becomes an offense as we begin to to describe them like this. Because that's how the gospel describes man, devoid of the grace of Christ. My wife is here today, but I'll still talk about her. And uh, she often says to me, in dealing with situations and people, well, should you expect any different? At times when you deal with people and they and they react or do something, I mean, this is what, what it's the heart of it. So we would, shouldn't be surprised when, when unbelievers who are unredeemed act like the Bible says their hearts are. We shouldn't be surprised by that. What, what, we shouldn't expect anything different. It's really what, what Paul is saying. Don't, don't expect it to be different. This is the heart of man. And that's true. It is, that is the heart of man. Now, now what we want to do as we go to the third point, the first thing is expect it because that's what the heart of man is like. Now, in this text, it, it's interesting. Um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't tell us to avoid, um, I think, the unbeliever, per se, um, we aren't to do that. It does say, and if you go down to the latter part of verse 5, it says, avoid such people. But what people is it talking about? I don't think it's talking about the world. I, I believe with all of my heart we need to go to our neighbors and we need to go to the nations. I mean, if if that means avoid such people, avoid people who are like this, and all mankind is like this outside of Christ at the core... Why would we do missions if the admonition is says avoid such people? I mean, why would we do it? Why would we be over in Kids for Missions having Heather and Kevin tell them about the nations and why they, they're going to the nations? They'd be violating scripture because it says avoid such people. Unless the such people it's talking about are not the people outside the church which I believe that's not who we're to avoid. What this text is talking about is when this enters into the church. We're to avoid such people who have this description, who are in the church and causing havoc within the church. 
And that is a reality that was happening for Paul. It was happening at Ephesus for Timothy. In fact, Paul was writing to Timothy, who was at Ephesus, and dealing with some difficult people in the church. And in essence, what he was saying is, and Paul is telling me, expect that difficulty is going to come, and expect that difficulty is going to come in the church. Because what what Timothy was about, what Paul was about, what we're to be about is sowing the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, so the word should drive that. But at the same time, Satan is sowing his seeds as well. And, and sometimes those both grow up in the church. Both of those things grow. The wheat and the tares, they all grow up together. It's hard to totally differentiate all of that. But the truth is, what he is saying when he says avoid such people, he is talking about avoiding those in the church. Another reason why I think that is if you look at verse 5 of the sex. It says there, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So these are people who are in the church, who have risen up in the church and maybe made profession of faith. and certainly have made some kind of profession of faith, but they have professed something that they actually don't possess. They are, they are people who are not genuinely converted to Christ but are in the church and and for some reasons we're able to get positions of power there and and influence there and are not only acting in ungodly ways because they're not redeemed, but they're exporting it to others and stirring up others and causing all kinds of havoc in the church. I think one of the things we need to realize is that that's, that's just happens. There not everybody who is making profession in the church is truly in the kingdom. That's just the fact of the matter. There are people who profess faith in Christ who genuinely don't possess it. And that was what was happening here. And so how do we respond to this? If that's the case, if, if, um, if there is going to be in the last days times of difficulty... And that difficulty is going to be because of the heart of man. Man is the difficulty. He's the one who's causing it. And some of those men and and people get into the church and stir up the church. What do we learn from a text like this? What, What application can we make of that? Certainly the application to be aware. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when it occurs. It's going to happen. And we seasons that are greater and lesser degree at times, all of this. But a couple of other things that I just want to share and then we'll close this morning. The first application is this, is the importance of godly leadership in the church. The importance is that at that level of leadership, we are careful. We are careful to, to raise up those who who give evidence of being genuinely converted to Christ. Genuinely have had their hearts changed. Not, not that they've arrived at perfection, not that they are people without sin, but they have begun to be lovers of God rather than lovers of self. They are not at the root lovers of themselves. 
And the times when they fall back into that selfish temptation to want to do that, the Holy Spirit causes them to realize the error of that and they, they see their hearts. They, they ask often, what is going on in my heart? They realize that, that they have been redeemed, that they have not arrived yet, but they wrestle with sin and they mourn over their sin and they are becoming, as, as we saw in my Sunday's class this morning, they are becoming and are poor in spirit, mourning over sin, meekness, all of those things are a part of their life. So the, it's incredibly important that we are careful at the level of leadership. It's one thing for the rank and file to have professing believers who, in fact, are not truly converted. But the danger rises as that moves its way into leadership places, and it gets more complicated and more difficult. The second thing is that we need to be careful there, but we also need to have an accountability kind of system. I, I've I've shared often, a few years ago, we moved to a plurality of elders model of leadership. And and I just more and more realize how incredibly important that model is. Because, Because even though this does not represent professing believers, that God, in fact, has changed them, this is not at the core, they are not lovers of self, but they are becoming lovers of God they haven't totally arrived. And therefore, there needs to be a, a plurality of, of people, not, not just one king leading the pack, but a, a, a plurality of people who give accountability and, and that people are willing to live under authority as they lead even the church. Um, it's incredibly important. It's incredibly important. It protects the church. It protects the body. From, from those who would take it ways it shouldn't go. The second thing, the importance of godly leadership in the church, but, but the second thing is the importance of, of genuine conversion to Christ. That we are careful, that, that we, we really do center in the gospel. That the gospel is the center of the body, and therefore, as it's declared, and, and people make profession of faith, that that we we seek to make those genuine possession professions of faith. People genuinely are converted to Christ and change from being lovers of self to lovers of God. Um, sometimes people can embrace Christianity, and sometimes Christianity is presented in a way that it's going to add something to your life. And so people will, will add it to my life. I'll, I'll take something that will add something to my life. But they really don't understand the, the, the gospel clearly. Um, difficulty comes and it starts to show itself up. As, as many times they'll fall away or they, they don't continue in their profession of faith. But we need to present the gospel in a way that that promotes genuine professions of faith. People genuinely converted to Christ. We don't have pseudo kind of conversions. People who who we convince are Christians um, because they maybe have said something we ask them to say or prayed something we ask them to pray. We we need to be careful that we begin to see fruit of righteousness before we too quickly 
give them assurance that they have, in fact, been converted to Christ. Now, you can, you can fall off the cliff on the other side of all of that. You don't set a bunch of rules and, and places that have to be checked off in order to make that happen. But we just need to be careful not to too quickly, too quickly convince somebody that they're in the kingdom um, without seeing fruit of that in their life. So those are incredibly important things. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, I, uh, I was asked to speak in our, in our district level of our church to those who were being ordained. And it just reiterated to me again how important, um, how important it is that we keep our priorities right within the church. I, I, I thought about that. I wrestled with that. I went to Acts chapter 6. And in Acts chapter 6, um, you find um, the church is growing and progressing well in the first verse, and then you come down to about verse 7 or 8 in Acts chapter 6, and it says the church is continuing to grow and continuing to, to expand. But in the middle of that, difficulty rises. A difficulty arises within the church. Um, the widows are being neglected, um, and one set of widows goes to, to the leaders and says, our widows are being neglected and the distribution of things. And so the, the elders the, are to step in and they're to deal with it. The leaders are to deal with the situation. And they had to exercise leadership. It was important that they did that. To ignore that would have caused it to fester. So there was a place for them to step in and exercise leadership. But the danger is to exercise that leadership in a way that would have take them them away from their priority. And in the scripture it says, we want to raise up others to do this so that we will not neglect the word of God in prayer. That we will not neglect that. Now, I'm convinced that in verse 1 it says the church was growing. In verse 7 or 8 it says the church is growing. And because they, because they dealt with that problem properly, with the word of God in prayer, the church continued to flourish. But the danger is that they would have dealt with it in a way that would have taken them away from their priors, taken them away from the word and prayer, and that there would have been a different response in verse 8. The church would not have continued forward. But it goes back to the essentials, I think, of, of the Scripture, that, that we must be careful to be... Um, people who are centered on the word and centered on prayer. It goes back to this issue of genuine conversion. Remember the quote of Luther that we had a few weeks ago or a few months ago in the Sunday school class that I shared with you? Luther, in the midst of the Reformation, said, I can get, I can get the message to their ears, but I can take it no further. He could get the gospel to their ears and needed to. He needed to get the word to their ears, the word, importance of the word, but then also the importance of prayer, the importance of dependency, realizing dependency on the Holy Spirit to take that word and to take that word from their ears to their hearts, to have genuine conversion take place in their lives, genuine to be converted to Christ. That, I think, is the antidote to uh, to raising up people who are unconverted within the church. God help us. 
God help us in both of those areas to raise up godly leaders and to, to, to make sure that people are genuinely converted to Christ. That, that no longer are they just lovers of self, but they've become lovers of God. Let me close this morning in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to turn there with me. And uh, if you're in my Sunday school class, I, I apologize to you. This may be repetition to you. But as we've walked through the Sermon on the Mount in that class, it has been incredibly, incredibly insightful for me to hear Sinclair Ferguson open up those earlier verses of chapter 5. And in that particular text of chapter 5, beginning about verse 1 on through verse 14, he just talks about what it is to be genuinely converted to Christ. What happens in a life that's genuinely converted to Christ? Genuinely moved from being at the heart a lover of self to a lover of God. And he says, blessed if you look in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not, not, there is a sense, as I said this morning, there's a blessing that comes as we grow more and more to be poor in spirit. Yes. But that's not what he's saying here. He says, blessed are they who are poor in spirit. Blessed are they who mourn. Now certainly again, a place for learning to mourn more about our sin. But, But blessed are they who do mourn. Blessed are the meek. Same way. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Again, blessedness in growing more and more and hungering and thirst. But blessed are they who do hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. All of those things. That is what it is to be Christian. That is what it is to be converted, that we now live in the reality of being poor in spirit, of mourning over our sin, of meekness and hungering and thirst after righteousness, a desire for purity of heart. All of those things are the fruit of a redeemed life. And how different they are now, how different all of that is. If you go back to Second Timothy You read that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst. How different that is from how the description Paul writes when he says, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure. May God help us. May God help us to not be surprised by times of difficulty, but to realize the root of it. The root of it is the heart of man, and the remedy is the grace of God upon the heart of man. Let's pray. Father, we pray you'll help us. Help us as we live in these last days, Lord, to be wise. To understand, as Paul would have told Timothy, understand, understand that this is the way it is and will be. And to be wise about how we 
we lead the church, wise about how we raise up leaders, wise about how we share the gospel of Christ in regards to people and, and deal with them and as they embrace it, come to faith. Lord, I just pray that all of that, you will help us. And all of that, Lord, you will, you will aid us as a church here at Richland. And there is a sense in which, Lord, we, we, uh, we avoid such people. We, we don't let that rise up within us and we deal with it as a church. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're not going to sing this morning. I'm going to allow you to go. May God be with you. You're dismissed.